The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The text for this morning's message is Psalm chapter 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Um, good to be here with you this morning. Before we open the scriptures, I want to take just a minute uh, to remember someone who played a small part in the story of Cormdale Church. Uh, you might have heard on July 1st that an Omaha businessman, Dave Paladino, uh, was killed in a small plane crash in southwest Iowa. Um, Dave was a complicated person and sometimes even a controversial person in our city. Uh, but back in 2005, his brother and sister-in-law were a part of the core team that originally launched Cormdale Church. And at that time, Dave himself had just professed faith in Christ and he was beginning to ask how he could honor the Lord with his business and with his vocation. And so for the first few years of our existence as a church, uh, Dave paid our rent for our Sunday gathering space to allow us to have a place to meet. Now, Dave was never actually a part of our church. In fact, I don't think he ever attended a single service here. But this was one way of him just trying to invest in God's work in our city. And so he was a part of our story. And in light of his passing, I just wanted to tell you that story as a way of honoring him and honoring the way that God used him um, in the genesis of our life as a church. Um, also want to tell you a story of what I've been up to over the past few weeks. I haven't seen you guys in a while, so I brought along some photos. Uh, there's where I was about 10 days. This is actually me just getting a look at my photos on these amazing LED screens. That's really all this is about. Um, that's where we were... Uh, that's where we ended up after seven days and 200 miles of mountain biking. Here's a few of the other places I got to see. Um, sorry, podcasters, if you're listening and you're not seeing any of these amazing photos. Uh, just imagine some amazing photos being shown on the screen <laughs> as you listen. Um, I'm, not, I'm not just showing you my travel photos here. This is actually the introduction to the sermon. Um, here's what I want you to think about. There's a reason why when summertime hits, uh, many of us flock to places like Yellowstone and Yosemite and Moab 
There's a reason you head to your lake cabin in Minnesota or to the mountains of Colorado or take a road trip to the Ozarks. And the reason is because in these places we encounter majesty. We experience the beauty and the wonder of creation. Um, the mountain bike trail we rode at the end of our time in Moab is called the Whole Enchilada, and it snakes for miles and miles along this, this canyon. And every time you arrive at a new vista, it sort of takes your breath away again, and you feel like, we should stop and take a picture here. So we literally took like 12 pictures along the rim of this canyon. We just realized, why do we keep stopping and taking pictures? The reason is because there's a certain kind of majesty when you come upon a scene like this. Every human being, I think, senses the glory and majesty of nature, right? We, we, we agree about the what. And the what is, man, nature is full of majesty and glory and beauty. But what Psalm 29 is telling us is there's a who behind the what. The saddest thing in the world is to enjoy the what of nature and to miss the who behind it all. The glory of the world around us is meant to move us to praise the God who created it all. But maybe you're one of those people who can relate to C.S. Lewis's skepticism about praise. Listen to what he wrote in his Reflections on the Psalms. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people round every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Can you relate to what Lewis is identifying? This, this sense that God asks us to praise him, and yet when anybody else asks us to praise him, it's, it feels weird and obnoxious and strange. Well, Lewis goes on to write this, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That's essentially what Psalm 29 is inviting you into. Psalm 29 is saying you should absolutely enjoy the world, enjoy the beauty of nature, and as the consummation of that enjoyment, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Enjoyment of creation should overflow into praise of the creator. So 
That's the essential message, the essential idea behind Psalm 29. Let's look more closely at the structure of this psalm, at how it's put together and how it seeks to show us this lesson. I'm going to assume you have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't, I want to invite you to get one out. There should be one under a seat near you, especially when we're looking at the Psalms. Seeing it laid out on a page is really helpful because you begin to see the structural components, how it fits together, where the breaks are and things like that. So it's better than just looking at a screen. The Psalm, Psalm 29, has three main sections, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 9, and then verses 10 and 11. And if you're looking at it on the page, you'll probably be able to see even the breaks in how it's laid out. In the first section, verses 1 and 2, a scribe is the repeated command. The psalm begins this way, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So the command is, Ascribe, give God the glory that he deserves. The middle section, verses three through nine, speaks repeatedly about the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is the repeated idea in this middle section of the psalm. Listen, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. What's happening in this section is the psalmist is poetically using image and metaphor describing a powerful thunderstorm which begins out over the Mediterranean Sea, gathers strength as it passes over the coastal mountain region, and then breaks into the valleys of Israel in a way that sends people running for their basements. Sort of like you experienced a couple nights ago, am I right? I was out of town, but I began getting text messages early Saturday morning of neighbors with trees down and people talking about not having power, right? We know what a storm like this is like. And there's a reason why when you read this description, you're like, oh yeah, not every storm is like this, but some storms are, right? Some storms make Lebanon skip like a calf, if you know what I mean, right? It's like the whole world is shaking, Um Psalm 29 was written after a storm like that. And the psalmist is saying this storm is a manifestation of the voice of the Lord. Behind the what, there's a who. Behind the glory and the terror of nature is a glorious God who is sovereign over nature. What's interesting is to think about the story the psalmist is telling and why he's telling it the way he is. Here's the story the Canaanite peoples were telling themselves. To the Canaanite people who lived all around Israel, Baal was the god of storms and of thunder. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you know Zeus had a thunderbolt, right? This is very common among sort of pagan ancient Near East that there was a God connected to storms and thunder. Meanwhile, Yam was the God of the sea and of chaos. 
And the Canaanites, like many surrounding cultures, saw the world as sort of a yin and yang battle between these two competing gods. The question was, which one would achieve supremacy? Which god would win? So notice the psalmist is using image and metaphor and language that will resonate with the people all around. The idea that there's a God behind storms and thunder is the language of their culture. This is exactly what they thought. So he's using their language and their metaphors and their images, and then he's subverting their whole worldview in the, in the, in the meantime. Right? He's saying, God, the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, he's actually the only God, and he rules over it all. Thunder, rain, forests, wilderness, the waters, the sea, everything. There's one God who created it all and who rules over it all and who is sovereign over it all. Behind the what is a glorious who. So Psalm 29 is an interesting picture of what mission looks like. What does it look like to proclaim the glory of God in a way the people around us can hear and understand? Well, it means listening to their stories, paying attention to the way they make sense of things, and then showing them how actually God is the one behind and over all of that. Behind the what is a glorious who. Is it true that God is the God of thunderstorms? Absolutely. And it's also true that Psalm 29 wants to make that point particularly because of the cultural context it's being preached into. That leads us to the final section of the psalm, verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Notice the juxtaposition of ideas here. This God, this Yahweh, this Lord, this God of the Bible is enthroned over everything. Yet this powerful, glorious God is not distant. He's not removed. He's personal and present to his people. He's a God who gives his people strength and blesses them with peace. He's not a God far off. He's a God who is near. The next time a good Midwestern thunderstorm sends you running for the basement, hear the voice of the Lord. The next time the scenery in Moab or the Grand Tetons or Rocky Mountain National Park takes your breath away, hear the voice of the Lord. The next time you gaze up at a sky full of stars on a clear night, hear the voice of the Lord. The creation bears witness to the Creator. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that you know who to praise for all of this beauty. How to take your enjoyment of all of this and turn it in its appropriate direction. And if you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you to listen attentively to what the mountains and the rivers and the trees and the flowers 
or saying to you? Behind the what, there's a who. A personal, glorious creator God who wants you to know the joy of praising him and of enjoying him. And all of your enjoyment of the world, as wonderful as the world is, all of your enjoyment of it is incomplete until it leads you to praise and enjoy him. Listen again to C.S. Lewis. What do we mean when we say that a picture is admirable? We mean that admiration is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response. And that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. Many objects, both in nature and in art, may be said to deserve or merit or demand admiration. God is that object to admire which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost all. Who's worthy of admiration? God is. Admire God. That's what Psalm 29 is saying to us. Don't just appreciate nature. Ascribe glory to God. As you appreciate all that is in the world, all the beauty of what exists, ascribe glory, praise to God. But let's not stop there. That, that's the main theme of the psalm. But let's also observe one really important fact about Psalm 29. In fact, if we miss this fact, we, we miss the whole thrust and focus of the psalm. And, and that fact is simply that this is a worship song. It's a song written for public worship. It's a song meant to be sung among the people of God as they gather to worship God. Now, you have probably been around long enough to realize that every week, Olivia, our worship director, and her team choose a set of songs for us to sing. And the worship set that we sing each Sunday morning is chosen based on the text of the sermon and the profession of faith and the other liturgical elements that go into the morning. And if you have any eye for thematic unity at all, you realize Olivia is amazing at what she does. When you come here and you see the themes that are woven throughout all the songs we're singing and the texts we're reading and the prayers that we're praying and the confessions that we're confessing, you realize there's a tapestry that's being woven here. There's a thematic unity to what's going on. In other words, we're not just picking songs out of a hat, right? It's not like three fast songs and then two slow songs to really settle you guys down before I come up here to preach, right? There's a thoughtfulness and intentionality to the worship of God. And that's always been the case among God's people. So when was Psalm 29 meant to be sung? Where in the worship calendar was the best spot for this particular psalm? Well, interestingly, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, specifies that Psalm 29 is to be sung during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a big feast that took place in the fall in the Old Testament calendar. It was basically a big camping trip. Uh, all God's people left their homes they all vacationed to Jerusalem and built little tabernacles, temporary huts, 
to live in for a week. It was like a big RV trip for the people of God before RVs. They would worship God. They would feast together. They would enjoy being all together in one place and celebrating the fact that God was their true home. The Feast of Tabernacles looked back to God's presence with his people when they came out of Egypt. And it looked forward to the day when God would dwell with his people forever. The Feast of Tabernacles was an annual reminder to the people of God, God is our true dwelling place. Before we had homes, before we owned any land, before we entered the promised land, God dwelt with us. God took care of us. God preserved us. God sustained us. And he's coming to dwell with us again. That was the essence of what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. So, it's not an accident that in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, speaking of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, expresses it this way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That little word, dwelt, is the word for tabernacle. It's the same word the book of Leviticus uses to prescribe the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's the same word the rabbis wrote in the margin of Psalm 29 to instruct the people when to sing it. Don't you see? The voice of the Lord, friends, has taken on flesh and blood. No longer is the glory of God just seen in the thunderstorm and in the beauty and glory of creation. The glory of God has taken up residence in a human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And he has, through the coming of the Prince of Peace. But that's not all. Sometime in the New Testament era, the rabbis modified the Jewish worship calendar. Uh, like we do here, they were like, oh, let's add some new songs, change some songs around. Uh, and so they moved Psalm 29 to the Feast of Pentecost in the spring of the year. Perhaps you remember what is significant for us about the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So imagine this scene in your mind. Just down the street at the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish people would have been gathering to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And it's likely that they would have been singing the very words of Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. And as that very psalm is being sung, the voice of the Lord is going forth in a whole new way. 
The voice of the Lord that strips the forests bare now resounds in every tribe and tongue and nation as ordinary Christians, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, are sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So when we read and hear Psalm 29, it should absolutely lead us to praise the Lord of creation. It should lead us to hear his voice in every thunderstorm, and in every ocean wave, and in every bird song. And it should also lead us to listen to the voice of the Lord through the Son and through the Spirit. So here's the question Psalm 29 puts before us this morning. Do you only see the what? Or do you see the who behind the what? I don't just mean at Yosemite or Yellowstone or Moab or Rocky Mountain National Park. I mean right here on a normal Sunday morning. Do you only see the what or do you see the who behind the what? Listen, one of the things that happens for me consistently is that my vision just narrows and it's easy for me to just see the what. I mean, we do this every Sunday, right? We're right here every Sunday. And you know what we do every Sunday? Kind of the same things. We show up, we see some people, we sing some songs, we hear a sermon, we might help out or serve others in some way. We'll come back and do it all again next Sunday. There's, there's a what to the gathering of the church, right? But there's a who behind the what. Friends, when the word of God is opened, the voice of the Lord is sounding forth. When we come to the Lord's table, the word made flesh meets us in bread and wine. When we confess our sins together, the Holy Spirit whispers assurance and comfort to our souls. And when we encourage and serve one another God blesses his people with peace through our voices and through our hearts and through our hands. There's a who behind the what. And Psalm 29 wants to help you remember as you go out into the world, as you take your summer vacation, as you journey and travel to places as far away as Yellowstone and as close as your own backyard. Psalm 29 wants you to see the glory of the God who made it all. And, and Psalm 29 also wants you to see the glory of the fact that the Spirit of God and the Word of God speak even right here, right now. So as we close in prayer, I just want us to engage the who. I want us to remember we're here interacting with, communing with, the God of the universe. He's here, present among us, wanting to make his presence known and wanting us to see him and hear his voice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, like your people of old, we are blind and deaf. We don't see you as we ought. We don't hear you as we ought. I confess and we confess that we are prone to just do the things we do and miss 
your glory and your beauty. This morning, would you awaken us to your presence in the world around us, to your presence here this morning, to your voice speaking to us through your word, to your presence meeting here with your people through bread and wine and prayer and worship. Would you open our eyes to see you? Would you open our ears to hear you? Would you let us be refreshed in your presence? And would you renew our sense of your beauty and your glory so that with this psalm, we might ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We pray for our good and your glory. Amen.